Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Zoja. I'm with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University, and I am joined today by my friends Giselle Donnelly, also a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and Dalibur Rohat, um, a senior fellow with AI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Today, it's just us, um, and we will be doing our best to assess Zelensky, <laughs> as per usual, um, with his uh, with his multiple speeches at multiple parliaments um, around the West, um, and we'll also be looking at strategic implications on the ground and beyond into the Eastern Front and the larger West. Um, to start off, I want to turn to Giselle. Uh, we've uh, been uh, watching uh, and following Zelensky in uh, in Congress in uh, this week. Uh, we've also heard him in Germany and in other places. But let's start with the United States. Um, how? Uh, what are your takeaways from Zelensky's speech the other day? Well, first of all, all of the major speeches or speeches at the major capitals have been, uh, you know, in perfect tune with the sort of best myths of the countries involved. Uh, Berlin Wall in Germany, uh, Churchillian we will defend on the beaches in, uh, in London, and a whole panoply of classic American references, including sort of channeling of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, um, uh, in addition to, you know, hitting other American tropes. But at the same time, uh, while it was a supplicant's appeal, it was likewise, uh, I think in every case, uh, a powerful assertion of Ukraine, Ukrainian, both nationalism and sovereignty, but the you know to, to take the American uh, example, a, a dream of what Ukraine wants to be and might be is it survives as an independent country, and in particular, I, I was, and I believe that many American commentators were were struck by sort of the throwdown aspect um, in regard to President Biden and the United States more broadly, um, basically defining what it means to be a global leader in the current context, which goes right to the heart of the American strategic debate or geopolitical debate. And it's an issue that we've been wrestling with uh, with not very much success, I'm uh, afraid to say, over the past couple of decades. So it was it was a precision guided munition uh, <laughs> with multiple warheads, and um, we shall see what what the American reaction is. Whether, for example, President Biden's announcement of 
uh, additional short-range air defense missiles and anti-armor uh, weaponry uh, is is going to cut the mustard, and whether public opinion has now moved much more strongly in favor of doing more, whatever that exactly means, I, you know, inching towards some sort of greater but still indirect involvement. Uh, yesterday, I think there was a poll coming out that to me, as a somewhat new resident of the United States, was surprising. So I want to ask both of you how that fits into it. Um, a poll done by Pew um, saying that now about 35% of Americans support um, a direct uh, military confrontation with Russia. To me, these are very big numbers. Um, how do you guys see that? Well, it's also pretty interesting if you break those numbers down by age demographic. Um, it, it still seems like younger people are very hesitant, you know, so the number would of direct involvement uh, for younger generations is lower than it is for older folks. I think the experience of having lived through the Cold War where nuclear brinksmanship and antipathy to the former Soviet Union mm -hmm. was more ingrained and more in inculcated. So, um, you know, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure uh, how much... Go ahead. How much, sorry. I'm not sure how much sort of weight I would put on these individual balls. Um, I, I don't think people necessarily have very well-formed opinions on events that are unfolding in in real time. I mean, you know, there, there was the famous poll on the no-fly no zone. Uh, you know, it, it, I think that this is extremely sensitive to how the question is asked, uh, what people sort of imagine under, under these under these different different concepts. And, and I, I think it would be sort of dangerous for like political leaders to, to let themselves be guided by opinion polling. Uh, because this is really a moment that sort of requires leadership and be, being sort of ahead of, 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 of the events rather than being dragged by public opinion. I think over the last three weeks, we've seen, unfortunately, the opposite. So I agree with you that polls are just one moment in time and they shift like crazy everywhere, um, actually, right now, and especially at times of war. But... Um, But what I've seen from the West over the last three weeks is just slow reaction. Um, I haven't seen, and I'm not pointing finger, fingers at one um, leader or the other, just generally that um, we are slow to react to what's happening over there. Um, and we haven't put together some kind of a strategy of, Are, how are we involved in this? We're trying to avoid being involved because of public opinion. We're trying to frame things in a certain manner very, very carefully, but without really looking ahead. And I've seen these discussions now over the last few days, separate from Zelensky, in hearings um, here in Washington, where different, um, different uh, uh, members of Congress were saying, but are we doing a national security strategy based on um, how we're reacting to an invasion? Or are we doing that? Um, are we doing it looking ahead? And what is that looking ahead? Are we just adapting our views to how Russia is reacting vis-a-vis -vis us and others? Or do we have a plan? 
All right, it's time for me to do a little American splaining here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were waiting for that. <laughs> okay, look, I, I, more than half of me agrees entirely with what you've been saying, but two things. First of all, I think you know if we took the Eastern Front aggregate analysis of polls, the the uh, Eastern Front average, as it were, I I, I see movement pretty in in one direction over the last couple of weeks. Yes. Um, you know, the individual polls and teleports quite right. Some of the questions that have been asked are more than leading the witness, but Yulia as to your, yeah, but we didn't have a strategy before the, I, I mean, the idea that we could, and we didn't want to have a strategy, you know, that this was all supposed to be about great power competition with China. And there are still many, many analysts who are dragging their heels, especially the people who've been, uh, you know, advocating for a China-centric strategy are really, really lo- reluctant to let go. I mean, um, take Elbridge Colby, for example. Um, but so... You know, I think it will take us some time to either, you know, cook up a, 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 either a strategy for mm-hmm. Europe, uh, let alone a, a globally framed strategy that uh, will be, uh, you know, again, that will answer the moment. China and Russia have moved closer to an axis, if not a treaty alliance. Uh, so, you know, these are fairly big muscle movements in the international political system that have happened very quickly. And in in this case, you know, uh, l- leaders who get too far behind public opinion, particularly, you know, in democracies, it's often public opinion that's wiser in the long run that reverts to sort of reptilian uh, political impulses that are baked into the culture um, that, uh, you know, is, is a more sort of reliable guide to good strategy. So, uh, you know, I hate to sound so sunny on the Eastern Front. Yeah. <laughs> so I was going to just add one qualification to what I said earlier. So, so, so I still think that individual polls should be treated uh, quite sort of reservedly, but like if if all the data points do indeed point in one direction, uh, then it becomes very difficult for politicians to like try to drag the country in the opposite direction. And and I guess the longer and there are multi multiple effects at play here. Like the, you know, the longer the, the the Russian war goes on, the more people will be uh, willing to just tune it out and just just perceive it as a background noise but also the more horrifying it gets and the more cities get leveled and more theaters with children get bombed uh there will be pressure for you know on the administration and also in western europe to do something i'm not quite sure what that something is um you know partial no-fly zone providing uh, ukraine with long-range uh anti Air defenses. So, so Secretary Austin was in in Slovakia, in my home country, yesterday. Um, Slovaks are one of the few NATO allies that have this S three hundred 
hundred systems, and they offered to 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 have them you know shipped over to Ukraine, but they need something else right. to sort of be able replace to, them. Yeah. To, to fill, 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 fill the gap, and um, I, I mean, I watched the, the press conference in Bratislava, and and the, the secretary was was quite sort of evasive on on you know what if anything we would provide these Slovaks with, and, and so th- these are the sort of questions that really the administration should be on top of, and and it mm. brings me back to the Zelensky speech where he, you know, the central message was, look, we want you to be the leader of the free world. You are the leader of the free. You, you say you are the leader of the free world, and now you have to live up to it. And and that involves costs. That involves like doing things that are not necessarily easy. And and, and maybe in this sort of you know democratic environment in which everybody is risk averse and thinking about midterms, etc. It will take a while for that message to sink in. But 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 perhaps we already are on a sort of trajectory that leads to some greater involvement. Aren't the? I'm glad you brought up the the Slovakia S300 issue because I think that was one of the big news over the last few days. But isn't that a, a repetition so far of the same scenario we've seen with the mix? The Eastern Front countries are offering something and saying, "Okay, but we are on the Eastern Front. We need to have backfills," um, and and then not just not just the United States, United States primarily because of everything obvious, but also Germany and others are saying, Mm-mm, we don't feel comfortable with that. We're not going to do that. Well, again, from an American point of view, this should be viewed as a huge opportunity. It would be some sacrifice, but not that great a sacrifice to backfill, say, the Slovaks with patriots, for example. Yeah. And one of the sort of Thing that, things that has lagged over the last couple of decades is weaning former Soviet bloc countries off their Russian supply systems yeah. and substitute. And the Pentagon has just been troglodytic in this uh, situation. I mean, again, it's kind of just to get the Poles to get rid of their MiG-29s and transition to F-16s and to get them better F-16s that would be more interoperable across the alliance and certainly with the United States and had more capability to do, you know, combat air patrols along the Polish border. I mean, a, a sensible defense secretary would have you know, been out leading the charge for, for that sort of thing or, or um, you know, NATO Supreme Commander or, you know, any American head of U.S. Air Force in, in Europe. These are, these are things, this gives us an opportunity to do things that we should have been doing for the past decades. And we're just looking a gift horse in the, or kicking a gift horse in the mouth. I think that's the correct uh, there uh, seems, phrase. Yeah, I, I think both politically and strategically there seems to be still a major let's call it a rift i don't know a catastrophe of a rift um between eastern front countries within nato on one side and western europe 
plus the United States, but lesser so, just focusing on Europe on the other side. Um, we talked, and I'll, I'll throw two things out there for, for both of you to chew on. Um, we talked about Zelensky's speech in Congress. There was also Zelensky's speech in um, the Bundestag in Berlin. Um, where very skillfully, who is his speechwriter? I mean, just take a moment here to um, to to acknowledge that. Um, but but um, he there talked about the wall, and yeah. he, and what was interesting in the wall analogy is I saw an MP from Ukraine, um, in maybe in the first week of war, going to Germany to ask them to um, help more, and she interestingly said. Um, this is, um, it was like talking to a wall. And so then Zelensky uh, came and talked about the wall. And after his speech and the standing ovation, which now is standard, the Bundestag went back to talking about the Tagesordnung, the, the discussions of the day without having a debate on what has happened. This was also seen as very critical in German media, um, but back to the, the wall analogy. So this is the one thing to throw out there. How big is the political rift in terms of also responsiveness of Western Europe to what is happening a few hundred miles away? And then the other thing, talking in strategic terms with Slovakia and Poland and the other countries on the Eastern Front is, wouldn't it be apropos strategy, high time now to get NATO's act together and talk about permanent basing and talking not just about tripwires, but heavy military capabilities, heavy patriots really lining um, the eastern flank of NATO so that we can deter what is a real risk, an attack against NATO territory. So those two things to throw out there. And then, oh, one last thing, I can't help myself, but but I thought this was also completely went unobserved in, in Western or English-speaking media. Um, the European Parliament voted on, it's not the final decision, but nevertheless voted on imposing sanctions over rule of law on Hungary and Poland. There was no differentiation between Hungary and Poland at times of war. Um, and also what this means, these sanctions mean, is that access to EU budget of Poland and Hungary will be very, very limited in the context of Poland um, hosting at, in their homes with a fantastic strategy, what, about 2 million refugees now, and there's probably more to come. So... That as a third element in terms of the rift between Western and Eastern Europe to me. Now I gave you a lot to chew on. <laughs> I, have, I have three things I wanted to um, say on this. So, so, so first to your NATO permanent bases, military presence issue, um, which was the sort of penultimate point you, yeah. you raised. Um, in particular, if if we sort of see the russia the, the the russian war against ukraine through the prism of this administration namely that it's not our problem until it touches an inch of nato's territory then that's exactly what we should be doing right like so even if we sort of mm -hmm. give up on the idea of helping the ukrainians in any effective way 
we should be really arming the Estonians, Lithuanians, Latvians, Poles, Slovaks, Romanians to their teeth exactly. so that once, you know, whatever happens in Ukraine, there is no question of our commitment. Like there should be like, I don't know, like even, you know, like things like sort of you know, like the, the the nuclear question sort of may, may, may be sort of reopened in, 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 in the in the sort of Central European. Extend uh, the umbrella. That was another. In, yeah. Exactly. Except it's not happening. So, yeah. so, so it's very hard to sort of say, okay, well, we can't really help Ukrainians, but we are really committed to to article 5 and nato if if you are not really matching that with with, with real action so so that, that's one thing i was going to say and 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 then you know like what what might be the reason for that and and for this rift that you described uh i suppose that in some circles you know people have lived with this comfortable illusion for 20 years that that, that we can somehow deal with russia and it's either not as much of a threat and we can do business with them and 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 be like we don't really like them but you know energy natural gas etc etc and 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 also there's this sort of idea that the sort of multilateral system and and rules-based order somehow exist on their own uh without being underwritten by you know if necessary by force Celebor, the arc of history, the arc of history bends in whatever direction we wish it to bend in. And in, in a way, for, for many of these people, I think past three weeks must have been a sort of shattering of, of, of illusions of, 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 of sorts, but it's very difficult to let go of, 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 of these sort of frames in which people sort of think through issues and 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 and, and so sort of recalibrate to this to this new new environment i, th- I think for for many people this will be a sort of discontinuous break between an old world and a new one and and i'm not sure everybody has fully come to grips uh, with with how much this changes things especially if we let putin get away with with oh, what he's doing okay okay i'm today's my glass is a little bit full day okay uh, always refuse, good on the eastern front <laughs> i know but it you know this is what passes for optimism on the eastern front so uh, we now have the united states has 100,000 troops in europe we haven't had that many uh, soldiers and airmen and other people there uh for 20 years easily uh, only uh, in the uh, ob- late Obama years, maybe you know, after the the annexation of Crimea, did we put any heavy forces in Europe, and only then on a rotational basis, meaning they deploy from their home station um, in the United States and stay in Europe for six months, and then they go back. Uh, to be replaced by somebody else. So we now have three heavy brigades in Europe. Um, and we've been gradually ramping up prepositioned stocks of armor and munitions and so on and so forth. Now, the, the problem is, is we've reached, we are now at the maximum that we can sustain on this basis to, to you know, our heavy army is so small that that's one third of the total number of tanks that the U.S. Army possesses. And if you're going to keep putting them on the conveyor belt like this, um, you know, you're going to, that's basically committing your entire 
an entire service to to this this mission. So I, I that cannot stand. That has to be reevaluated. And you're, you, I think, at this point, to withdraw that kind of combat power and pretend that you're defending the Eastern Front, which is demonstrably under threat, is not a workable. I mean, that 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 would be a catastrophe. So again, I think very very late in the game, the the veil has fallen from people's eyes. Now, whether there's going to be a sufficient and sustained investment to to keep this up and to expand it. The, the, the Eastern Front countries, I mean, I can go back to the late 1990s, did some, some work, at Yulia, in your home country. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were, they would have given us anything we asked for. Uh, in terms they still of do. Yeah, well, so <laughs> it was with good reason then. They, the Romanians have offered up, you know, Romania was an important lily pad on the, the lines of communication to Iraq and elsewhere in the Middle East. So, uh, you know, yeah, the, the problem has not been the attitudes of people in Eastern Europe, but the reluctance oh, no. of the United States and NATO. Before we go, I, I wanted to um, just, I'm sorry to seem bossy, but return mm-hmm. to the, the other interesting idea in the Zelensky speech. And that was that the current institutions uh, are a little uh, rusty and poorly designed for the current moment. So he, for want of a better term, he proposed what amounts to a league of democracies. Um you know, to not call it coalition of the willing, right? Okay, well, it's, in other words, something else outside. And he was, I think, wisely described it not just as a military alliance, but uh, you know, something broader. So it would include economic policy, and it would be centered around uh, liberal, um, freedom-loving uh, political principles. And it would it would be a you know a, it would be an organization that only the willing, that people who would commit to putting their money and policies where their mouth is when it comes to these things. You know, I I wonder if that idea will catch on. I think um, it is connected to what he's or what the Ukrainian government overall is hinting towards in these so-called negotiations that, of course, they cannot trust. But they're saying, OK, NATO, back to 2008, we have the same problem. Macron would call it brain dead, <laughs> um, that uh, that um, there some members are vetoing for whatever reasons, Georgia and Ukraine's membership, and this is what got us here. So how do we move on from this? And I think their logic is um, let's get security guarantees, proper ones, not memorandums and et cetera, but let's get security guarantees. And so that's, I think, the Ukrainian perspective, and I think it makes a lot of sense for them because they have to think about alternatives, otherwise we're just ending up blocking them through NATO. Um, but but you're right, Giselle, in that this can have very interesting implications for 
um, the United States, if we are pushing towards, if the world would be pushing for towards something like that, a coalition of liberal democracies willing and able with whatever contributions, we got to make space for, you know, the Baltic countries and, and the other smaller ones. This would be an opportunity also for the United States to rally up deterrent support for issues such as China that is completely blocked in NATO. Every time I hear people talking about how NATO should look at China, I'm thinking, are you crazy? Uh, Ukraine and Georgia didn't happen. How 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 is China going to happen? Well, so also the, the Chinese have bought their way into NATO through the Belt and Road Initiative. You know, uh, you know. So, so, so Dalibor, so, sorry, I, I, I was going to connect this this threat to. To, to, to another sort of salient attribute of of, of, of of this whole situation, which is really the sort of birth of, of, of Ukraine as a political nation and the deep sense of patriotism that permeates everything, right? Like this, in some sense, looks like like one of those national liberation struggles of the 19th century. Uh and, and and Zelensky is you know playing this figure of a of a Garibaldi if you will and 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 for you can understand how how this all happened like these people are fighting for the ability to govern themselves independently of some sort of imperial interference from from Moscow and and I've seen some people on the sort of national conservative right on the sort of saner end of that spectrum to sort of claim Zelensky as a as a nationalist as one of them <laughs> which is, uh, which is which is funny in the sense that, um, you know, one of the things that Zelensky et al are fighting for is the ability of of the country to you know join the European Union if if they decide to do so, and you know, like sort of abundance of European flags on the Maidan in twenty fourteen was very conspicuous, and and also this. This sort of aspect of, of 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 his speech, you know, League of Democracies or whatever we want to call it, uh, is a sort of recognition of the fact that contrary to what our national conservative friends are saying, no nation is an island in and of itself and needs to work with others, like-minded allies, like-minded countries, you know, defending its own interests and 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 and. and Sort of cultivating values it 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 holds it holds dear. So, uh, so it's it's a sort of very healthy form of 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 patriotism that that should be indeed leveraged to to sort of reinvigorate this institutional architecture that exists that has been built after the Second World War. Like there is no reason to to believe that you know like the EU, NATO, UN agencies as they exist are the ultimate expression of. Of you know the the rules based order or liberal order or whatever you want to to call it. I mean, you know things change. You know some countries that were not democratic twenty years ago have become democratic. You know, like few people might have expected Ukraine to to really be the sort of beacon of hope, of you know liberal patriotism, if you will. Uh, uh, that it has become. Few people expected Hungary to go down this this sort of trajectory that it has gone down to, and and I think sort of. The, the institutional structures that we have have to have to somehow adapt. I, just one bit of uh, snark, and, one, and then a, a, another point that Delavore you raised. So, for the uh, nationalist conservatives, it must be clear that Zelensky, uh, the five foot five Jew, is more manly than Putin. <laughs> 
the former <laughs> the judo KGB man, right? So it, it's it's funny. He's he's been at you know, you know, he's more virile than Putin. So the strong gods caucus is abandoning Putin and shifting to Zelensky. Uh, that would be a very uh, that would be kind of a delicious development if it were actually true. But more seriously, you know, I, it's going to be a while before we can know this. But I mean, Zelensky is speaking to a Ukrainian audience as well in these appearances. And, you know, Ukrainian society was not a liberal democracy uh, or a very good one uh, heretofore. So you wonder if he's creating a national myth of Ukraine that will be difficult for Ukrainians to, uh, you know, not live up to. Uh, yep. If I were a Ukrainian oligarch with, uh, you know, a lesser yacht, uh, I'd be hiding it in Dubai as well. Uh, you know, I, I can't imagine that Ukraine can possibly be the same after this. It will not, but I think um, I'd like to end on the, on one note around, I, Daddy, I really like the liberal patriotism, and this is kind of a um, an appeal of us or a warning sign, both to the West and to national conservatives and to everyone else who's trying to claim this uh, in in a way or another. Um, on Zelensky, we have to always remember that he is, and he says that all the time, he is just extrapolating and leading something that was there among Ukrainians anyway. Um, he is just putting together how Ukrainians are feeling um, and how they're fighting, and and he he himself is is just a symbol of that. So people tend to to um, make it all about Zelensky. And so my appeal here would be to everyone to make sure that you understand and we understand that this is about the Ukrainian people. Zelensky is just their representative right now. And people say that all the time. The Ukrainians have said it on our podcast at times of of peace we criticize the hell out of the government and there's so many shortcomings and corruption and all these problems at times of war he is just leading us and so we support him entirely and so for those who already claim that this is some kind of a win for the west no it's not it's a win for the ukrainians the west is not fighting there we're only trying a little bit to support but we know that we're not doing enough. So this should be um, a note to everyone who um, is trying to claim Zelensky's or Ukrainians win or liberal patriotism on their own uh, for, for themselves that in the end, um, it should be inspiring, like Dalibor was saying, and Giselle, I think you too, but be careful about agency because this is the Ukrainians um, and it's a whole bunch of them, about 40 million. All right. So Wait, before we go, I, there's one aspect of the speech that I think we should mm -hmm. talk about briefly. And I, I just want to introduce the topic and that is the, the video presentation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which was an, just an extraordinary, as a former congressional staffer, uh, just the, gestalt of all these <laughs> geri geriatric 
senators and congressmen raptly watching uh, the the jumbotron in the uh, in the Congress was astounding enough. But I thought, you know, as as wonderful as his speech was, the, I think the thing that may resonate and may move the the longest was that absolutely gut wrenching yeah. uh, video appeal. Just really, the speechwriters were great, but the videographers or the the, the filmmakers uh, were easily equal to the task. I would say. Yeah, I heard a recommendation from uh, one uh, Congress member who said um, everybody should watch it and you should actually consider as hard as it is making your children see some of it because this is what Putin is doing to Europe. But um, yeah, on that recommendation, we wanted to end on a positive note. How how do we not manage that? Dalibur, do you want to give it a last try? <laughs> well, well, it's it's funny that that our show has sort of descended into basically rank punditry, as as Jonah Goldberg would would put it. So, so on on our next episode, we'll be dissecting the Arnold Schwarzenegger speech, which, which, <laughs> which also struck me as another bit of you know amazing uh, propaganda. Not to, I mean, I I thought it was pejoratively. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I'm, but I'm not the audience for this. So I'm not quite sure how it sort of played in Look, on the Russian Arnold social media. Is still, you know, a, a working class hero to, I mean, to the degree that there's certainly an American audience for this. You know, the, the truckers who blocked the Beltway have watched every Arnold movie since The Cradle. Um so, He's also right. very, very beloved in Russia as a male symbol, a symbol of power and all of that. So I guess his main audience was the Russian one. The question is, to what extent this will get to the Russians when Russian TV is playing about 10 times a day, Tucker Carlson? Yeah. Well, we can all agree, however, that somebody noted on Twitter that, that Arnold is... <laughs> the most significant and best elder statesman that we have. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, from me, Yulia Zhoja, and my friends, Giselle Donnelly and... Dalibur Rohaj. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You could find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front pot. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.